Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you the speaker presentations from the 2023 East End Conference. Organized by Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth, and Carl Kopek, who also acted as MC for the event, took place on the 7th and 8th of October at the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street, in the heart of the East End of London. Jonathan Ty, Edward Buckley, Thief, Bully, Ripper. There were some audio difficulties at the beginning of Jonathan Ty's talk that we had to reconstruct, so you'll hear a variation after about the first three minutes. And also, this is an enhanced video podcast, so make sure you are viewing this podcast episode on a podcast app that allows for video podcasts, or you can stream it on the podcast's homepage on casebook.org. Edward Buckley, thief, bully, ripper. Anybody that's ever visited Winchester Cathedral could not have failed to notice its large, colourful stained glass window. It is a window of broken fragments of glass, but it wasn't always that way. Before the English Civil War, that large window told a story but that story has been lost to us. For me, that is very much like the story of Jack the Ripper and Ripperology itself. We have lost the bigger picture. By looking closely at those fragments of glass, there are hints of what once was. Edward Buckley is one such story. I hope you enjoy it. What I intend to cover today in this presentation is a little bit about how I discovered Edward, the methodology I used to do that, and then go through his life in a series of well-documented events. Sparrocks Row, where he carried out his first attack, and then a bit of a backstory to Francis and Edward, the main characters in our story. The fight at Fashion Street, which was extremely, in my opinion, instrumental in his formation of his personality, occurred in 1882. Then the major attack at Devonshire Street, and then we're going to break Edward's life down into sections. Edward the Thief, Edward the lunatic, or if he was a lunatic, and then Edward's decline. Then what we'll do is look back to 1888, and then finally look at Edward Buckley in relation to the Whitechapel murders. And then we will finish by looking at possible avenues of future research. You know, when I research an individual or a story, I tend to use key words using the press. So I, it might be Whitechapel Road, Dempsey Street, Unfortunate, Devonshire Street, Clarendine Street. I will then comprehensively look at every bit of information over a period of time related to that particular keyword. It is during one such search that I came across one of Edward's attacks. I can't recall if that was in Devonshire Street or Sparrocks Road, but it interested me. And as a result, I cross-referenced with casebook site and the JTR forum site just to ensure that no one else had or I'll find out what else people had looked at before in relation to this particular individual. I was astonished to find only one entry by the late Chris Scott. He had, he had looked at the Devonshire Street attack back in 2004 and put down these words. I'm not suggesting that he's Jack but his is maybe the kind of attack that preceded Jack's career. And then to my astonishment, I found 
but it wasn't really followed up and I had a blank canvas to work with and that for the last two years is what I've been doing in relation to researching Edward. But then just six months ago I was extremely fortunate to find by a, an amazing coincidence that Julia Mason was also looking at the same individual and that was our and his first oh my god moment. Oh my god I'm doing the same thing as you and then we agreed to cooperate and the cooperation has accelerated what we found magnificently over the last few months. And every time we found something, this, this is the reaction of Julian, which I love. Oh my God, look what we found, whether it was a photo or a prison record. So there was four people now in the marriage that my partner had to cope with, four of us. But then in August, we decided that we needed to look at some original records and a fantastic gentleman called Jose Orangutan, if I pronounced that wrong, Right, um, joined us in August this year to help us through the particularly difficult year of 1888. And his method of contact is one that is a bit of a worry. So what you'd be doing is at three o'clock in the morning, could be that, couldn't it? Yeah. You'd suddenly get a text, guys. And then I know that Julian would sit up and you'd go, what's he found? And I'd do the same and you're waiting. And then you might write, Translator's not working, I'll come back to you in a few hours. Or he'd say, um, I think I'm on to something. And you'd think, tell us, tell us, please tell us what you found. And then the next day it would be a find that you've made. It would be something you never even needed to worry about in the first place. So that was my fifth partner in my uh, marriage. That was the one that put the strain on our relationship. <laughs> it really did. So that's the background. So let's start the story properly. So Tuesday the 26th of August, um, 1884, not Whitechapel, south of the river in Borough, but this is a, um, an attack, a, a murderous attack, very much made and born in Whitechapel. It occurred in Sparrocks Road, which is the road here. Sparrocks Road is a very, was a very secluded street of warehouses and hophouses behind Guy's Hospital. Um, when I studied the, the road itself, it had a reputation for baby exposure. So babies just being left to die all the way from the beginning of the century. And I don't know if that's connected to the hospital. <coughs> Two unfortunates did die there in mysterious circumstances. And Mary, Man Mary Ann Mahoney, Christmas Day, 1890. Um, and then of course we've got the, the attack itself. It was destroyed in the Blitz, as many other streets were in that area. So on his beat, PC Bowen, heard a woman shrieking murder. I don't know why they always say murder. Or you'd say, get off, leave me alone, go away. But they always shriek murder in the, in the press. He got there and found lying on the ground a woman and a man standing over her with a pocket knife. It's quite a ripper-esque scene. I actually think that that's almost like an inverted image of Buck's Row. It's like it's a mirror image. So, upon seeing the policeman, he drops a knife and takes off and he's chased by the policeman through the streets um, and she follows on the woman injured uh, and weaker but follows follows them on when he's caught he says if you don't let me go I'll knife you too and he's taken with very great difficulty to a Stones End police station every time you read an article about uh, about Edward it says with great difficulty it talks about the strength of the individual <laughs> the doctor who examined um, the victim was uh, said that she had defence with on her hands, 
The policeman said he looked like she'd been punched to the face, so that's probably how he got her to the ground. Um, and uh, it was a Dr. Allender that did it. Um, she received a stab wound, you can see there, that was within the abdomen, which is an unusual place as it is. It penetrated her old dress, petticoats, undergarments, to an inch into her flesh. The press write of this story like it's a lover's tiff, and that happened throughout this case. So they'd lived together in Tarling Street, which is the other side of the river, the St George's area, and due to the ill treatment she received, she'd moved back to her parents' home in just off Long Lane. But some of the press say that Ed, uh, the gentleman wrote a letter to her to arrange the meeting where he attacked her. After this occurred, he was bailed, and they couldn't find the victim again. I haven't mentioned their names yet, but they, so the two perpetrators of this story are Edward Buckley and Francis Jones. In many ways, the story that, we, that I'm going to tell you is the story of the, Francis Jones. It's probably the beginning of it, the middle of it, and the end of it. Um, the violence that she suffered and the attacks that she suffered, and it could be at the heart of this man's personality. It's difficult to know whether he was a lover, uh, who was just violent, or, a, or a, what they would call a, a bully then, or a pimp. So very much like the relationship between Michael Kidney and Elizabeth Stride, they sort of kept under lock and key and living off her, um, her earnings. So who were they? So Francis Jones, unlike Mary Kelly, it, Francis Jones is her correct name. Um, she was the fourth daughter of, of six daughters, eight children in all, born to a druggist chemist called Frederick, uh, <coughs> Frederick Jones and a lady called Alamina Waterford. Children were born between 1860, that's the birth date of Francis, and 18, the, the late 1870s. At some point in the, um, the early 1880s, after the 81 census, the, the family moved over the other side of the water, mainly because I think they, the mother died and he remarried. And it does give the backing to the story of her then going to visit or wanting to move back home near, uh, near Long Lane. The eventual address, Ilderton Road, is not that far from Long Lane, actually, it's a Bermondsey address. So where is she in 1881? This is the heart of our story. Um, the address is here. So she was boarding at 239 Whitechapel Road, which was a coffee house run by a man named Thomas Walton. I don't know if it was a front for a brothel. It may well have been. She's listed as a boarder with a pro profession not known, alongside another lady called Alice Watkins, who up until recently I called Tina, who was a friend of mine from school. She was actually even in the draft for that magazine. I had to make some late changes. Um, both of these women, curiously, they're both women at the same age, suffered the same horrific facial injury. Um, Tina was, uh, Tina. <laughs> Alice, <laughs> Alice was subject to a murder-suicide bid in Brusfield Street, which is very close to here, in July 1881. So a man named Robinson took her to the street because she'd moved out uh, from them living together, and he shot her through the cheek in an attempt to kill her. Um, he then shot himself. He died. Um, she was treated in the Metropolitan Police, uh, Metropolitan Free Hospital in Commercial Street, um, but she would have been scarred down this side. Um, going back to Frances Jones, she frequented this public house, uh, which was the East London Tavern, which was originally part of a, a larger theatre that's, I think, burned down in the late 1870s. The, the landlord was a Jewish landlord called Jonas Wolfe, a very successful one. Um, uh, he made 
Um, he was quite central to a lot of the entertainments in the East End at the time, so a very effective landlord. This is probably where she may have met Edward, because they both frequented this pub. Um, in September 1882, she had a child in Stepney Workhouse, and we don't know the fate of that child. We don't know what happened to, to the child, whether it died or not. In April of 1884 she gave birth to a child again but it's, it is recorded as a stillbirth so the child died the pregnancy issue with um with francis could be at the heart of the violence that he inflicted whether or not he was trying to uh there was a deep resentment or an anger for what for her inability to carry a child he first appears making an attack on april the 14th uh, sorry june of that year 2 a.m he, Edward tries to enter the East London Coffee House where she's boarding. Um, he's unsuccessful, so he throws his hat at, at Thomas and he kicks at the doors. A local policeman, PC John Mann, tries to intervene and then Edward assaults him. So that's the beginning of the background of, um, of the violence that was to occur. So who was Edward? This is a bit that I found most difficult trying to convey quickly. Let's see if I can do it. So Edward's the son of an Irish immigrant family, uh, a gentleman called Daniel Buckley, who was probably from Cork, born in around 1820, so he's part of that Irish community. Um, his mother was Mary Ann Elizabeth Barrett. They lived for the most part in the Pennington Street area, on the eastern side around Tobacco Dock, as you would expect from a cigar-making family. Edward also was describing himself as a cigar-maker. They would have uh, four known children, Elizabeth born in 1848, and Mary Ann, who's quite essential to this story, born in 1851, and then two brothers, Ed, uh, John Buckley in 1859, Thomas in 1862, and, uh, and Alice in 1867. Um, by the 1870s, the brothers, John and uh, Edward in particular, have already got full. They're already cr criminally active. Um, Edward is clearly a pickpocket, so in, I think back in May 1874, the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh go to open Chelsea Embankment, and Edward is there with another young man, and they're lifting wallets, and they're spied by the police. So he's already, he's already done some time, he's already been in cold bar fields for a certain amount of months, at least we've definitely got a record for an Edward Buckley doing time. His brother, in 1879, commits a robbery just off the commercial road near Lehman Street. He's particularly violent to the wife of the, 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 the two victims, James Cochrane and his wife, along with a guy called John Sullivan. John attacks and uses obscene language towards the wife herself. Um, so there's, all, there's a trait to this family to be violent towards women and have a real disdain towards women. By the 1881, the family are fully established in Morgan Street. I put Burner Street there not because I'm trying to do a ripper connection because most of us know where a lot of these sites are. Morgan Street was the melting pot that eventually became Hessel Street, the big Jewish market. And if you look at the, uh, the census for the period, you do find that the, there's a Jewish influence just starting to overtake the Irish influence in that particular street. Um, Mary Ann was living in uh, Morgan Street by the late 1870s with a new, uh, newly married to a gentleman called Frederick Clark. Um, and Thomas, the uh, brother, also gives that as an address. So let's move on. Uh, this is the Tarling Street down here. 
And Dempsey Street is, I think it's just a fake address that Edward gives out. Every now and then he says, I live in Dempsey Street, and you'll see that throughout the case. So, the fight of Fashion Street. So this, this case is actually in the old, you can read about this case on the Old Bailey Online. 27th of March, there's the, the, the full case notes. So on the fourth, Saturday the 4th of February, late at night, Thomas Buckley starts the story. He says he goes to fetch his father home from, from um, Fashion Street. We all know, probably all know, the connection Fashion Street has to the Ripper murders um, and even to Mary Kelly. So I imagine they might actually be drinking there on that particular night. So Thomas goes there and he says that when he arrives, he finds his father very worse for liquor and he's jacked off. And his brother is fighting. He's fighting another young man called John Donovan. And the police try to intervene and then the fight continues. It continues down an alley somewhere off, off, of, um, off of Fashion Street. We know that John, ba uh, John Buckley was staying in a lodging house not far as well at Flower and Dean Street. At some point in the fight, Edward collapses. He'd been knifed. He'd been knifed tw two times in the, in the abdomen. The doctor that treated him, um, who was the same doctor who treated poor Alice Watkins, said that one of them was particularly severe. So he took two severe wounds to the abdomen. He took wounds that caused his veins, uh, the, the arteries to spurt in his hand as well, his left hand. He uses that a lot in some of the cases that he was later involved with. What effect that had on him, psychologically I don't know, but two severe stabbings to the abdomen may have had a deep effect. Um, he was in that hospital for 17 days. He claimed not to remember anything, not to know what had happened, um, whether that was clearly that this guy was a real heavy drinker, um, whether he was just trying to avoid any more involvement. There's, an, there's evidence here that the, the kind of the Irish community in the East End like to keep things to themselves because Thomas kept on saying no money has been uh, exchanged as a result of my evidence. He wouldn't say who had actually used the knife. He, he wouldn't point the finger at John Donovan. But when John, John Donovan was found um, not guilty at the end, he said that it was Edward and Thomas that attacked him. Thomas had attacked him with an iron bar and Edward with a knife. So they're, they're, they're violent men. So that's kind of the background to a series of events that then was to occur. And this is the cycle of violence that led to the attacking. Um, so we've already seen that he attacks PC man trying to get into that coffee shop. Then we have the attack in Sparrow's Row. So she must have been, Francis must have been lured back somehow from the south side of the water back to, back to Edward's company because in November we found that a Francis Buckley, so he almost like he's, he's, she's now his wife, but they never married, is stabbed with a fork in, in a place in Fenton Street. It's a horrific attack. When the uh, policeman, who's a Henry Green, arrives, the fork had been driven so far into it back it went to the hill, and one of the prongs were bent. Edward's found with the, knife, with the fork in his hand and he just drops it. But somehow, Francis is spirited away. She's kept from the police. The magistrate sends uh, Henry back and he says, well, we need, we need her. We need her to, to tell her side of the story. But they can't find her again for the second time. And John Buckley assaults one of the solicitor's clerks, a guy called William Drummond, who's attempting to find that information. He attacks him. So these brothers, they're almost like the Crow twins of, the, of their time. They're, keep, they're keeping her from justice and they're keeping her away from justice. Quite a horrific, a horrific attack. 
So then we've got a bit of a gap. After November, I think, from the evidence that we have, that um, Frances made her way or got herself to the Bridge of Hope um, refuge, which, had, which was just opened by a lady called Mary, uh, Mary Steer, I think it is, in Princess, number 26 Princess Street, um, because she enters the work, uh, enters the workhouse coming from there late, late in January. Um, she would have been there, and it was number 26, at the same time as Elizabeth Stride was receiving arms and help from number 33 as a result of John Stride dying. Um, she was, uh, I think the guy was Sven Olsen that she was getting help from, so they were both in Swingball Square. It's one of those things, and Steve will always say about coincidences, and, we, and we've got to think about the density of population there, but there is the possibility that they may have come across <coughs> each other then. We both know that, uh, we all know that after that, Francis, um, we know that um, Elizabeth made her way to 33 Devonshire Street. Francis made her way to a brothel in 5 Devonshire Street. So that's where she headed afterwards. So this is Edward again in action. So by now living at Hanbury Street, number 14, Buckley, how the Hatton carriage got in, and as it rode down the Whitechapel Road, he stopped it outside that East London Tavern and said, I'm going in for a drink right there. He was in there for six hours. So imagine an Uber driver now waiting for you for six hours outside a pub. He comes outside, and the poor guy goes, where's my fare? I've been waiting for you. And he just whacks him, knocks him, and assaults him. Um, we've recently found evidence that he was offered a fine or a sentence for this, and it looks like he took the fine, so he paid the fine. Then on the 2nd of September, another horrific assault. Francis is drinking in the pub, or the public house. Edward arrives, goes in, she's sitting at the table, and he launches at her. He attacks her again with his fist. Jonas uh, Wolf said that he was attacked and kicked in the most horrendous manner. Um, what is unforgivable at this time is that the judge and the press were almost sympathetic to Edward. The headlines in the East London Observer was it almost served her right because Edward claims she'd, he'd given her money and she'd stole it from him. So it's worth remembering that headline because we'll come back to it. It almost served her right. He got exactly a calendar month for that. He was told to keep the peace thereafter. But what did he do? He came out on the 2nd of October and he went straight to Devonshire Street. When he got to Devonshire Street, he locked the door behind him and he attacked Francis with a knife and a stick. When the police arrived, there was a policeman called Jules Linney. He was told by two of the other unfortunates in the house that she'd been locked in. She found, he found the room smothered in blood. Francis was on the bed, her hands in a supplicating manner. She handed him the, uh, the knife that she'd been attacked with and the broken stick. He said that her eye was almost hanging out. And then she'd taken, which is described there, you can see the knife attack across the face. I don't want to do ripper connections today because we're not trying to sell a ripper suspect. But I very much believe that knife attack there almost mirrors in life the knife wound on Catherine Eddowes in death. It's sort of like a mirror image. Um, so her hands were swollen as well. Um, so she really was in a bad way and she was unable to attend court. 
The next day, the police, Sergeant Adam and uh, George Linney went to, to the coffee shop where he was staying to uh, arrest him. He was found in the top room, carrying behind the door, fully dressed. I don't know if there's anyone who's an expert here on the, uh, the, the buildings in the area. I'd love to know if that's contemporary, because that would be really of interest to me. You can see this building now, Bud Flanagan's birthplace is the one next door. It's at the top of Hanbury Street. You can also see, and you could definitely see from that top window, 29 Hanbury Street and the entrance to that yard. So you can see it from there. When he was when he was approached, he gave the same story, and I've given her money, she's nicked it, that's why I did it. Does it matter? It's a pity a man should be pulled up for a brass now. It got to call, and everything had changed. Francis said, I started it. I was drunk, it was me that hit him in the first place. The judge wanted to know about her tax, and she said, can you show me where he was attacked? Obviously her face is bandaged. It implies that she might have been attacked in her lower regions as well because she said, I can't show you. Um, that's in some of the press. The two female witnesses said, don't know nothing about it. So Edward and his family had influence. They could inflict fear. But he couldn't save him this time. He got 12 months for his endeavours. 12 months in calendar fields. So I'm going to leave it there. The violence, we're going to leave there for a while. So we're going to jump big back and I'm going to look at... Some cases illustrate his modus operandi, so how he works as a criminal. So this is back in October 84. This is probably how he got his money to go to live at Fenton Street. Um, three men, Robert Jacob, Harry Pesperini and Al Edwards, were at a cattle market, a horse buying cattle market in um, Islington. When a very unfortunate man named James Arnold, um, a horse dealer from Kent, was carrying quite a lot of money. He had £70 in checks and gold to the value of £20 in his pocket. He saw three respectable looking men around him. And this respectable, shabby genteel thing, that we don't need to always assume that means that they're posh and they're from the West End. Uh, you know, pickpockets would have dressed up to mix with the crowd. They would have made themselves look like the, the people they were trying to steal from. I think it's something to remember. So you notice these guys around him, one's holding his hand in a funny manner, and then he checks his pockets and his money's gone. But the next day, he comes back to court and he goes, I've made a terrible mistake. I've been home. The money's been under my pillow the whole time. So who's got to him? Someone's got to him in that time. Even the judge was cynical. He said, this is curious. This is not right. There's laughter in the court. The case is thrown out. It illustrates the fear that this family could inflict. And then we have the racist connection, which I'm sure um, Sarah might explore in her presentation tomorrow. It's in her wonderful book, One Arm Jack. And I do believe we've probably brought the study forward with this racing connection, because I, I agree that there is one, I think. At Kenton Park races, in the busy betting ring, 6,000 people, according to the policeman that was there that day, um, a master butcher called Alfred Ben, carrying a lot of money, that's what he had £60 pound in cash in his pocket, so he had to bet and enjoy himself. So as the race starts and the crowd rise up, suddenly he feels a pan go in his pocket. And it's Edward. He's using his left hand. He can't grab his left hand. His left hand somehow disappears. So he grabs his right hand. And as he grabs the right hand of Edward, he's kicked and beaten to the floor by men who just appear from all different directions. Edward is secured by a policeman. So he doesn't. He hangs on for dear life, this witness. And he's taken out of the ring. As he's taken out, people are going, shame, shame, let him go. Rouse, let him go. Boo. <laughs> And the first thing Edward says when he gets to the police station is, 
did you not catch the, the, the other men, before, the two or three other men before me? He's securing his money. The money's gone. That money was lost. That's all he was interested in. Um, and then at the court, you can see the policeman makes a comment about this left hand. He's obviously tried to use it. He's obviously, I can't use my left hand, it's crippled. But he has. And he said, I've seen it, there's not much wrong with it. Um, so who called out Rouse? Who called out, let him go? It's likely to have been John Buckley. Because John Buckley was also a race called Spief. Um, on the 29th of June, 1889, John had taken £10 from a man, a gentleman called James Paul Jones, trying to get on the train with his family. So as he got on the train, he used the train coming in as a distraction. He ruffled inside him and stole £10. John got away with that because there weren't enough witnesses to what had happened. Edward wasn't so lucky in 1899 because he was caught at the Epsom racetrack. Well, I just got on in inadvertently there. Well, that's really stolen the thunder from the next bit. And I've gone on again. How do I go back? Oh. Oh. <laughs> Seen too much now. Right. So, he described in 1891, I don't know if it's ironic humour, John Buckley in the census says, I'm a turf accountant. Um, and also Edward, in some of the, some of the newspaper articles up thereafter, says he's a commission agent, which has a best connection. So where was John living in 1891? So John was a, a lodger in the Star and Garter, which is in Corkshire. That is remarkably close. Holly Nichols here. And it's right on the corner. It's one of the possible escape routes. The question for you all is how, when did he take up residence there? When did he start to lodge? in that address, because I think that's quite fascinating. Um, that pub got in trouble in 1888. It was losing money hand over fist. No one was going in there. I've done a little study of it. So the landlord could have had to take lodges to, to supplement his money, but he could have already been there. We don't know. Um, John went on to marry the landlord's daughter. Uh, the new landlord was called, uh, I think it's Frank White, and he married Rosetta White in 1894, and he moved off to Clapham. So he leaves the area in the mid-1890s. Uh, Staying on this road, the drunken behaviour continues of Edward. So Edward, using the alias Henry Jones, um, decides, uh, basically, halts the traffic in the White Chapel Road with his brother Thomas. It takes three policemen to drag, drag him away. He takes a running kick at one, <coughs> and when he appears in court, he's got no shoe on, no sock, and his legs in bandage because he's assaulted a policeman. But it shows the strength. Thomas seems so intent on getting, let my brother go. It's all about releasing Edward. Edward's always the focus of everything. And it does continue on. Um, just three months later, he did serve time for that attack on the police in Whitechapel Road. He's seen with prostitutes again in the commercial road using obscene language. A young man with him, and it always seems to be young men that he has around him, like loyal lieutenants. Um, George Hall served more time for, the, for attacking the police to release Edward than Edward did for the attack on the police. This letter is from Simon Wood. I was reading his book. And Robert Anderson makes a request to find out about George Hall in the early 1890s. So he wants to be known when he's released from Colney Hatch. There are two Georges that could match the one that day with Edward, both of the same age. One served time with him in Pentonville and the other in Colbar Fields. The final attack that... Uh, Illustrates his modus operandi is Martin Sepp in 1894. Takes him for a drink in Ernest Street along with a William Hudson. They have drinks, he puts him at ease. They then follow Martin home. 
Edward gets behind him, grabs him by the mouth and disarms him. And while he does so, William steals the money from his front pockets. When he's found by the police the next day, they both were staying in the same lodging house, but they disappear off to one of the various alleys in the area. When he's found, he says to him, oh, I only did it for your own goodness. I stole your money just for you. This was his way of speaking. So that's the way Harry operates. But Edward starts to decline. I'd love to say it was in 1888, because it would really fit the story. But there's no real dividing line. Overwhelmingly, Edward <coughs> was a chronic alcoholic. And I think Durian said that, well, actually, that Edward murdered Edward. It was Edward that actually destroyed Edward. 3rd of November 1896, an off-duty policeman is riding down the Whitechapel Road and he sees a man stripping off his clothes, taking everything off in the middle of Whitechapel Road. It was Edward. So the policeman gets off, goes down to see him and obviously takes him into custody. Um, he's, he's told his conduct is absolutely disgraceful. He has nothing to say. He only gets away with it and bound over to keep the peace because the jailer recognises him and said, I only released him last week. He'd assaulted a man, it was a man called Edward Wow, wow riding a bicycle. He hit a child in the street. And as he got off his bike to investigate what happened, Edward just appeared out of the crowd and assaulted him. A policeman heard the commotion, he comes along and Edward then attacks him. Really violent man. So he's going to be doing time in asylums by now. So there is evidence that he's before 1896 he was in an asylum, but he goes to is this, this is Banstead. In Banstead in 1896, we've got some of the notes from his uh, entry. It says that um, he's acute alcoholic. He's no longer suffering from hallucinations. Does that mean that he did at some point? And he was very weak, weak and ill and inflamed. Thereafter, he's constantly in and out of, of asylums. So that leads us to my connection with Durian in that he was in Leavesden as well, 1904, 1905. 1903, our photograph that we've got of him comes from his habitual drunken file. In 1907, he runs down Allgate claiming that he'd blown up London Bridge. I've just blown up London Bridge. I'm going to stagger humanity. And he's arrested again. And the, the, the doctor that's in, in the presence of the trial says, look, this is not worth proceeding. He's, he's an alcoholic. He needs to just to be put away to, to, to drink it off. So that's the guy's gradually declining. And this is really, we get to his end, that's that record there. 1909, Whitechapel Road again. He's um, walking in and out of the people getting on and off the tram. He's noticed by the tram inspector, Charles Grover. He knocks an old gentleman's hat off. As an old guy bends over to get his hat, he takes his wallet. That guy was never traced. Um, but Edward's, he's almost given up on himself. The old Edward would have thought, and he just says, it's all right, you don't want to worry, I'll go quietly. He got 21 months for that. Um, the longest conviction, a conviction for stealing a wallet when you get 10 months for beating up a woman, it doesn't make any sense. So this is the record which is so key to mine and Durian's work. It proved that the Ed that we got is the correct Edward. If you, any of you were to look at the press and just randomly go, you'll see so many different ages. He's 63, he's 54, he's born in 1844. And you think, have oh, we got the right guy? This record confirms it. It lists all the convictions he's got. This is the one that links him back to uh, the Kempton Parkinson and the assault on Francis. So this Ed that we've tracked all the way through is the right one. So his last years, for some reason he seems to haunt the very streets that are connected with the Ripper murders, the renamed Duval Street he's in. He's in 
Thorn Street when he comes out uh, early from prison in 1911. He's in White's Row, connected to, to um, Francis Coles. And in between, he's released to his brother or his sister into their care, which by now she's living in Brunswick Street in, Clapper, uh, in Hackney, and he's in Clapham. So finally, on the June the 8th, 1923, he's found drunk and collapsed in Hanbury Street, the very street that links him to the, the attack he committed on Francis and that links him geographically to the attack on um, Annie Chapman. He's buried, by the way, in St. Patrick's Cemetery, not far from Biddy the Chiver, who was the model for that picture. We didn't know that at the time, and, and Pearly Pole and the rest of them. So that kind of pantheon of, of Ripper-involved people he's buried. So uh, uh, this presentation would have been blank at 1888. I, would have just I was just going to leave a question mark, and we were going to leave just quite, like open question. Where was he? But Jose really did fill in the blanks for us. We found out that in May... And Edward Butler, not Edward Stowe, but Butler, you got that Susie? <laughs> got that there? Um, committed an um, attack on a, a Francis Jones in a pub. But same old story, he goes in the pub, offers to borrow a pint of stout, or, and says she's nicked his money. This time he assaults her, but she knows what, obviously what's coming, so she runs. She gets outside. And the policeman sees him attack her again. He gets four weeks. He's a very angry man. His words were, uh, you see there, I've done time for it before, and I'll do it again. So that, I don't know if it's the, the Yorkshire, but I'm down on horse. He was down on horse. An angry man. But look at the contrast in those headlines as well there. That's that East London that uh, almost served her right, and then we've got serve him right. Was the press aware of the history? Or were they, were they her words? I don't know. So let's do this last bit. And this is what we've managed to piece together. So, he's released from Pentonville for the Kempton uh, Races Affair in 1888. And then Annie Millwood is attacked sometime after February, late February. We have the Emma Smith attack in Osborne Street. And then four weeks later, he gets his assault charge on Francis. He's out in four weeks' time. He's drunk and charged with being drunk and disorderly on the 30th of July. He's released on Friday, just in time for the bank holiday weekend. And on the 7th, Martha, he's attacked. On the 18th, he's back again. Obscene language and being drunk and disorderly. He's got five days. The, the PC Lang was the guy that arrested him. And PC Arthur Lang, I've looked at his beat. Now, I can't be 100% correct because beats change and moved around. But Arthur Lang's beat was Spittle Street and Hanbury Street. It puts... Edward in the location of those attacks at about that time. And of course, he's to discharge on the 23rd, and then we have the Polly Nichols murder. So I just want to leave you with some final thoughts. That racing connection I really do think is interesting. I would like to just throw out there another reason why there was nothing that occurred in the October of that year. We've talked about injuries to the hand and roadworks and streetworks. What if Edward was at a race, a big race meeting? There were quite a few in October that year. There was record crowds at Newmarket, I believe, as well. This one puts him in Newmarket in um, March 1890. So he'd obviously been travelling or lodging on the way to the races. And what but a reason for a pickpocket to go back to Whitechapel or back to London for that Lord Mayor's show? No other better reason. 
Francis, poor old Francis. The last time we can change Tracer absolutely is May 1888. We've got a Francis who's a general servant in 1891 in Brick Lane, and then on the 3rd of January, we've got a Francis, uh, 1892, we've got a Francis in Nottingham Street, the Nottingham Street where Francis Coles brought a pretty bonnet, got her bonnet, goes in again, goes into the workhouse, again loses a child. So that could connect her back to our Francis. And then we've got a draper's assistant in 1901 um, in Wentworth Street, on the corner of Wentworth Street, uh, that is a Francis Jones. As I said at the beginning, Francis could be the beginning, the middle and end of this story. Uh, the psychological turmoil caused by those pregnancies could be at the heart of this whole matter. Uh, the fact that she could not have a child or bring a child to vision. Edward, as, we, as far as we know, never had a child, and nor did John, luckily, incidentally, either. And that just brings us on to the brothers. The Buckley brothers, we need to explore more. Myself and Junior have so many records for the Buckley brothers and the crimes they're involved in. We've got a John in 1886 in Piccadilly in December, seen cavorting or probably acting as a bully or pimp for prostitutes. We've got a Thomas Buckley of the right age, um, at the right time, carrying out an indecent assault in K Division. So that's Bethnal Green, that kind of area, in October 1885. Um, and Stane Thomas suffers a, a, a knife attack in a lodging house in Frog Street in July 18, 1890. He, um, and he withdraws the charges, just like the Buck, and that's how the Buckley Buffers seem to deal with things. So Edward Buckley in 18, remainder of 1880. So I'd just like to leave you with a final thought, and it goes so against what we've heard from Donald Rumble earlier today. I think if you accept that Emma Smith said that she was attacked by three women, uh, three men, and we have no reason to disbelieve that she was attacked by three men, as a dying testimony, we must, we must entertain that there is a possibility that more than one person could have been involved in these attacks, either at one time or the other. Um, because of the, ge the sheer geography, Polly Nichols is last seen in Osborne Street, and we have the other attacks that are linked to that area. We must entertain that possibility. In order to do that, all of us need to drop this obsession we've got with the FBI and serial killer profile. We all sit indoors in our chairs. He's obviously done damage to his mother before. He's, he's done arson and he's killed birds and things. When he's, We need to remove it and look at the case for, for what it is. Um, up until the Polly Nichols murder, murder and the advent of the lever apron scare, the police entertained that this was a gang, this could be gang related. So there, there is a possibility that, that these men could have been involved in some way or another. And Edward has got the profile. So I will leave you with, with that. One other thing, if I've got time to say it, have I got time to say it? Um, Jose, who has been wonderful, he said to, he said to me, he said, Jonathan, at best, uh, Edward Buckley is just another lever apron, a man who goes around treating uh, unfortunates, but threatening them. Unfortunate and then I thought back to that, the article where he stopped the traffic in the Whitechapel Road. He describes himself in 1889 in April as a shoemaker. And in this article here, he's described as a shoemaker which is the very profession that Lever Apron was supposed to have been part of. So there you go. That's our research to date. All of you can get involved and see if you can develop it more, but that's what we've, what we've done. Thank you. Hope you like that. Um.
Thank you, Jonathan. What a lovely family. Huh? What a lovely family. Julian hates them, don't you, Julian? <laughs> giving him nightmares. Wow, that's extraordinary. I'm, all, I'm really interested in the whole October 1888, where was he? Oh uh, yeah. What was um, going on? We, we've not we, we've looked at original records. We've come find no convictions for him in the London area. So it, 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 we we have not gone. We've not studied this guy. We're thinking we found out the ripper. We've looked at a story and developed a story. So we could find that he is there is a Edward Buckley convicted in Cambridge in that time, and he's you know or convicted in Epsom. But as far as where have we got to so far? We cannot explain his movements after August the twenty third. Right. I think it's especially interesting and really sad the uh, how many Francis were there in London who are living this exactly the same sort of life, just being beaten so. constantly by. Yeah, and the, and that that story of Alice, who, they're so closely related to stories. It's a man who gets enamoured of her or wants to control her, and a guy called Robinson to carry out that attack in Brussels Street. It just shows you what those unfortunates went through and, 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 the, risk. and the press report um, that made me think of Catherine Eddowes and you, you deserve to be beaten up when you go home you shouldn't be drinking exactly that lovely yeah. and yeah. That's, that's the thing um, any questions for Jonathan please yes I'm doing this again I didn't do this last year sort of following on from that point about how many Alice's there are um, I've had a figure of 26 murders in 1888 which sounds low given that we're always being told the amount of costings, fights, attacks on sex workers, yeah. people living cheek by jowl, muggings, it, it seems low to me. So are you saying there, there were more murders or? I'm saying 26 is very low for a very violent society. I mean, we could only go by what we've got, I guess what we've got recorded. I mean, it, it might be slightly off point. All I can say is from what I've studied of the period before, 1888 and the period from 1880 onwards is there is a hell of a lot of crime and this is not to show any bias towards a particular group which is Irish based crime with the names of Sullivan, McCarthy uh, it is entirely Irish upon Irish Londoners and the attacks are on male as well as female um, there is a there's a lady called Mary Mary McCarthy. She goes in she goes in prison. She fits brilliantly because she's out off off the streets in October, actually. But she attacks men as well as women, and she's scarred down the face. But the crime is overwhelmingly Irish crime, uh, and and I'm, I don't wish to knock the Jewish the Jewish theory. I think to find a, a crime which is Jew on Gentile in the 1880s is difficult. It is difficult. Maybe they knew exactly how, how to do enough damage without killing people. Rather like the craze later. Yep. I don't want to be hung, but... Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's... Um, uh, the, 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 when I've studied the streets, they're absolutely fascinating. I think I put in the article in the magazine, and I would urge you to read the story in the magazine if you get a chance to get it, because I develop, we develop the things a lot more. And it's on the forum site as well. And our research, which was painstakingly done over months, is all on there. So if you can do the both, do it. Um, some of the streets fascinate me. Queen Anne Street, which is you've got Bucks Row and you turn right. It's one of another possible. If you looked at that in 1881, every single person is not only Irish, they're from Cork. Born in Cork, born in Cork, born in Cork, born in Cork. It's an, it's an Irish world before 1880. It's starting to transform. It becomes a Jewish world in the 1890s. But this is where a lot of the crime is born. Any more questions? Thank you.
Thanks for that, Jonathan. Not a question, just an observation on the detail in the yep. presentation. I noticed towards the end you, you said that Buckley, was, he was identified as a shoemaker. Yeah. I saw in one of the earlier documents yep. it said Taylor. Yeah. But one of the Francis Jones you found subsequently said Draper's assistant. Yep. I just wondered whether there might have been any... Different people, right. So it's a great, it's a very good question. So Edward Frowey's whole life used different professions. He used cigar maker, it's on his death certificate, journeyman cigar maker. He used Taylor, possibly stonemason, um, as well as um, the shoemaker one. That seems to hang around that period. But we know it's the right Edward because of that criminal record, because all the criminal listings that are there tie back to those newspaper articles. That's, that's that one boxed up. With regards to Francis, uh, what I didn't say was that when she went in for the, the cut on her face, she's registered as a, a machinist. When she goes in for, goes into the workhouse after being in the Bridge of Hope, she says she's a fur sewer. So it's, it's related to her mother's and her sister's family professions, which is all in that trade. And I think that's why those terms are used. But that Draper's assistant in 1901 may or may not have been Francis. Those three records I discussed at the end, all of them could be her or none of them. Yeah. So but it's a good question. No, I appreciate that very tenuously. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Any more questions? Susie, you're miles away. Please shout. Um, just one observation, really, is that um, I've done a lot of genealogy with time. And yeah. And have you, uh, Christine also here has, has done a lot of genealogy. And I've never come across, in all the thousands of records that I've looked at, on a census record, occupation down is not known. That's yeah, the only yeah it's, it's there. I've, I didn't, it was not me. I, I got that record, logged it. I put, did I put, I think I put Boulder, didn't I? And then and Jose said, no, you're wrong. It says NK, yeah. not known. I've seen like, like, yeah. where they've come from is not known. Yeah. I've seen that before. Yeah, it was unusual. Very unusual. But their, their, their story, the, the pair of women, is, in my head, I actually visualise two very attractive girls that are working possibly in, in a small brothel. And that's what I, I picture. I could be wrong, but that's just my, uh, my assumptions about it. Okay, any more? Hey, Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And that was Jonathan Ty at the 2023 East End Conference. I would like to thank the organizers of this event for making the release of the talks available to Rivercast again this year. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find hundreds of conference talks, roundtable discussions, author interviews, and archive recordings, all about the Whitechapel murders and Victorian true crime. I'd like to thank you all for listening. See you next time.